0: It's a powerful word, isn't it? Belonging. There's nothing clinical about it. It ignites emotion when you hear it. And as my guest today describes it, it's a full sensory thing. Am I the only person who sees the word longing embedded in the word? We all long for it. We long to belong. Now, many of you listening are thinking about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many of you are somewhere on a journey. It's demanded of us as leaders. I thought I might add value to that journey by offering you a conversation about belonging that focuses on the structure of organizations. When I moved from the corporate sector to the nonprofit sector, I learned quickly that those who join a nonprofit expect to have a voice. Not always a vote, but a voice. And definitely those can blur. The reason they blur is simple. Some folks have power and some folks have less power. And as we look to imagine a culture of belonging, we've got to consider the role power plays, the power embedded in a hierarchical structure. In DEI work, we often focus on our own leadership. What can I do better, differently? Or our team, how can we work together to create trust, psychological safety? But isn't the work thwarted by how we structure our organization? It's kind of got to be, right? And what the heck do we do about that? Well, lucky for me, and for you, I have a guest today who's been thinking about this very issue and who offers some terrific insights on this piece of the puzzle as we work to imagine belonging. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangarry.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission, to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights today is no exception. My guest today is Rhodes Perry. Rhodes is a nationally recognized LGBTQ thought leader, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and award-winning social entrepreneur. He serves as the CEO of a leadership and management consulting firm, helping visionaries and changemakers build psychological safety, trust, and belonging at work. Rhodes, I'm super happy that you're here today to talk with us.
1: It is a pleasure being back on the on the podcast. I always enjoy our conversations and, and I always learn something new about nonprofits and leadership. So thanks for having me back and excited to explore today's topic with you.
0: So I feel like, sometimes I feel like I read bios and they go on for days. This one, I <laughs> felt like it sold you a little short. So a little more background for our listeners about all that you're bringing to this conversation today. And don't forget to talk about your book.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you had mentioned, you know, moving from the corporate sector to the nonprofit sector in your career. And for me, prior to running my own business, I worked um, most of my career in government and nonprofit and different leadership positions. So I've worked at the White House. I've worked at P Flag National, a big LGBT organization based in DC, worked for New York City government. So a lot of real world experiences of Sometimes feeling this elusive sense of belonging in the workplace, and more often than not, for a variety of my own identities, feeling a sense of exclusion, and um, and really working with organizations to try to build a more intentional workplace culture. So, so that's definitely shaped my approach to doing this work, and. Prior to Imagine Belonging, this this book baby that's about to come out in February of 2022, I wrote my first book, which was called Belonging at Work, and in that book is really just kind of my own knowledge, expertise, and lived experiences of what it really takes to build this culture of belonging in the workplace. And from a perspective, definitely, it's a book for leaders. It's also a book for any of us uh, in a workplace that that really wants to be a part of the change. Um, by looking at ourselves through some of those personal practices that we can take. So, a little bit about me. Uh, I'll definitely share my LinkedIn profile if people are interested in learning more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, what prompted you to write a second book? Like, when I, I always, I'm always intrigued with authors when they write their first book. Do they actually already know there's a second book? Or as they're writing it, do they realize, oh, there's a second book here? Or does it just sort of magically appear? I mean, I know during the pandemic, when Netflix was pretty much my sole source of entertainment, I decided to kind of rewrite my first book because yeah. I felt like there were whole big things I didn't say and stories I didn't tell. So I'm just sort of curious about what prompt what led you to a second book, the book called Imagine Belonging.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's a great question. And what, what prompted me to write the second book was actually feedback that I received from a couple of readers who were like, this is such a great book. And in that last part of the book, you're getting to this idea of really setting a vision and being really clear about where we're going and how to get there. And, and I wanted more of that. I wanted more on this vision setting and really, um, clarifying what's what's all involved in a belonging workplace culture how do we know uh, when we're we're kind of moving in that direction to kind of realizing it and when do we know we're off course and so I was like yes I wanted to spend more time on that and I felt on the first book there was a lot of foundational language that I wanted to be clear you know when I'm saying diversity when I'm saying equity when I'm saying inclusion when I'm saying belonging then we have this understanding that readers have an understanding of how I'm approaching work um, and kind of similar to your experience of kind of when you looked at, at the book that you wrote and then, you know, several years go by, we were like, ah, oh, there's so much more that I want to say. I feel like being in the DEI field is similar to, you know, doing LGBTQ advocacy, which is something that I've done in the past where in LGBTQ land, you know, our, our acronyms are that our language continues to get more and more savvy to describe all different aspects of our sexual orientations or gender identities And I feel similarly in the DEI field, we are, we're a young field and we are, we're, we're getting more savvy about how we talk about the work and how to share that in a way that's really accessible. And I, you know, I didn't want to rewrite my first book. I just wanted to build on where we were, you know, in 2018 and where we are, you know, when the book comes out in 2022.
0: I love that. So... Uh, Leads me to uh, really nicely to my first question, which is this idea of making sure people are on the same page about language. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to do a podcast where we're really, that's where belonging is central, it seems Mm -hmm. to me that we ought to have a shared definition of the word. So what do you mean, Rhodes, when you talk about the word belonging? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So belonging is something we intuitively know. So we, we know when we feel it and we know when it's not there. And, you know, like if you look in Oxford's dictionary, they would say, you know, belonging is an affinity for place or situation. So kind of taking that, you know, affinity for place when thinking about the workplace, you know, a lot of DEI strategists like myself uh, have worked really hard to do a better job of defining this elusive feeling of belonging, with the goal of, of really making sure that when we define it, leaders know how to build it. So I had the opportunity to work with CoQual, um, which is based in New York, and they were formerly known as the Center for Talent and Innovation. And they brought, brought together different thought leaders to come up with this shared definition of belonging. And I love what their research was able to produce, which is there are four basic elements to workplace belonging. And these elements include, the first one is that you feel seen for your knowledge, expertise, and experiences. The second element is that you feel connected at work, so you have positive, authentic social interactions with your colleagues. The third piece is that you feel supported at work, getting what you need so that you can do your best work on the job. And then this last piece is that you feel aligned with your organization's purpose mission and values, feeling a sense of pride. So there's this element of being proud as well. And I, yeah, I just thought it was really cool to define it that way because so often I hear from leaders are like, yeah, you know, we want to build belonging, but it just, it feels too hard. It feels, it feels too elusive. These very concrete elements make it super easy to measure. You know, if you're thinking about, okay, we're doing a poll survey on our culture. There's some really great questions that can dig into each of those elements to tell you really quickly who has that strong sense of belonging in the workplace and who is probably most likely to feel profoundly unsafe just showing up on the job. So I, 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 I
0: want people to hear them again because they might be driving or something. So yeah. I got seen, supported.
1: Connected. connected. and uh, Connected. And then the last one is, is proud right? So yeah. it's that alignment yeah. with your values and your organization's values. And you're not having to leave part of yourself behind. You're, you're 100% on board with those values.
0: I love those. I actually, and you're right. I think there are definitely ways when you tease it out into those four elements, there are definitely ways to, to measure that. I have to stop for a second. You are outside visiting your family in Florida, and I feel like your parents might have like a wind chime or something.
1: They do, they have one, <laughs> two, three. Four, five.
0: <laughs> okay, so so for those of you who have been listening to wind chimes and you've been thinking, I wonder if those are wind chimes? That's what yes. they are. Those are wind chimes. So enjoy them during the rest of the podcast. So <laughs> five wind chimes. That's a lot of wind yes. chimes. Okay. So your book is built around three premises. They're, they're kind of what I, I sort of see as requirements. I'm going to state them and then I actually have questions about each one of them. The first one you say is that challenging the status quo requires clarity. Hold that thought. Mm-hmm. Imagining belonging requires confidence. And bridging the gap requires commitment. So, the commitment part, well, the commitment part, I think I get more than the other two. So, let me um, start with number one. Mm-hmm. Clarity. Changing the status quo requires clarity. Tell me what you mean by that word clarity. Because I think that a lot of people who jump into this work aren't totally clear where the journey is going to take them. And so I actually think about clarity in a different sort of way, perhaps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in in the way that I describe it in the book, clarity requires that we have to be 100% realistic about what we're up against, full stop. So an example, you know, many organizations right now are investing in anti-racist actions. They're trying to equip their employees themselves with practices that are embodying being an anti-racist, right? However, right, and there's a caveat here, if we're not naming the dominant culture system that we're up against, and including talking about the why in the workplace, so namely talking about white supremacy culture, then we're going to miss the mark. You know, we're going to miss important areas where these dominant culture traits show up in our organization, right? So Temo Kun, Kenneth Jones do an excellent job of defining traits of white supremacy culture in organizations. This is like 20 years old now. So that's something anybody who's listening, you can Google that right now, really helpful resource, right? And what you're going to find is that when you read these traits, you're going to see how ubiquitous they are In most organizations, and I'm speaking on behalf of my experiences living in the United States and lots of different cities across the country, right? And just think about this, you know, like if you're driving, I wouldn't recommend doing this now. You know, if you're at home, think about how you define professionalism, right? And just, you might want to pause right now you know, and kind of write out that definition of what what it is. So give yourself some time, some space to write it out, then come back to the podcast, right? And when you do come back, right, some of those traits, when you define professionalism, you might say being punctual or, you know, making little mistakes, few mistakes, or, you know, thinking about, you know, our thinking in the workplace is there's one right way to do this. And there's definitely one wrong way to do this. Or, you know, we want to remain objective and neutral in our thinking, right? These are all traits of white supremacy culture that Temo Khan, Kenneth Jones go go deeply into, right? So, you know, we might be embracing some of these anti-racist practices in some areas, right? But not, if we're not looking at the full totality of how we lead, what we think of leadership, how we build teams, how we structure our work, a lot of our goals, those ambitious goals will be stymied And create some frustration. So that's what I mean by clarity. We really have to name what we're up against in these systems of oppression. You know, white supremacy culture is one of those systems. Patriarchy, you know, we're thinking about ableism. There's there's a lot of different systems Mm -hmm. that interlock and they work together.
0: Yeah, good. Now, the second one was imagining belonging requires confidence. Now, especially for those of us, and I would fall into this category, in the dominant culture, confidence can kind of be hard to summon. Fear of failure, saying the wrong thing. I mean, I I know for sure that on this journey, I do not always feel very confident. So what do you mean by it and what do I do with that?
1: Yes. So that everything that you named is super natural to feel because so many leaders like you and me, you know, we weren't trained in elementary school or middle school how to upend dominant culture traits or systems, especially if we've benefited from some of those systems, right? Because of some aspects of our identity, right? So in order to to kind of move beyond these kind of fears, and, and I think like one of the main fears that comes up, right, that gets in the way of feeling confident is that we're afraid we're going to cause more harm to those on our team. Absolutely. Who experience systemic exclusion, right? Yes. Um, and so, so we have to remember that doing absolutely nothing because of our fear, that's going to cause the greatest harm, right? So to build up that confidence, right? You know, we're going to have to do the hard part first. That includes ongoing self-education, listening listening to podcasts like this, reading books like the one I'm writing, you know, and engaging in conversation. And then we have to implement. We have to implement what we're learning, even when you're uncertain that you're you're doing it right, right? Right. Um, Because that uncertainty, that's I think where the resistance comes from, and not feeling confident because it makes us uncomfortable. So when we're uncomfortable, it's usually because we don't have all of those answers. And like, you know, and in the way that I learned leadership, you know, it's like these old models of leadership where the leader knows everything. Well, you know, like we have to be realistic. We don't know everything. And in this, this work, we have to be okay with embracing that discomfort and that uncertainty. And I think the best way to think about this, because so many of us engage in this work because we're passionate about it, So we have to prioritize the safety of those who still still feel profoundly unsafe simply for showing up at work. And we have to put our our desire to be comfortable, we have to put that on the shelf. And that's that's kind of doing that hard part first. When we're brave enough to do that, we're going to transform our relationship to this work because the more that we do it, the more that we move through that kind of uncomfortableness, that's gonna start building trusting relationships. If we're transparent about our work, if we're transparent about our learning process, that's going to build up the, the trust of other folks who are like, well, I, I hear about these DEI commitments, but I'm not really sure our leaders really are embodying it, right? Beyond just kind of setting that tone. And I think that's where we start. And I think when you start to get that feedback of like, wow, you know, we see that you're taking a risk, you know, and, and we appreciate that, right? Like that's going to start to grow the confidence. We're going to make mistakes. And I think like that's the thing that we have to be okay with because, you know, if you're learning to play a new instrument, I doubt any of us (laughs) have picked up an instrument. And from day one, we're playing those notes perfectly, right? So, you know, there's a little bit of grace in this. And and if you are making mistakes, right, then you're on the right path of learning and knowing better so you can do better. So that's where I would say, like, don't, don't let that stop you from kind of, really growing into the, the confidence that you're building.
0: Uh, the words, uh, so I think to myself, well, you know, I generally feel more confident when I feel more comfortable, mm. right? Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that's not necessarily, those are not necessarily aligned, but I think that that's probably true, right? I started learning how to play the piano at the age of 60, speaking of musical instruments. And um, I feel more confident when I play a piece well, right? When I don't make mistakes. Right. And we're learning a lot about confidence and failing forward and grace. All of these words have come up in our workplace quite a lot, and I think it's uh, they're just really useful to th- to think about. And I I believe your point about doing nothing is, does the greatest harm. It feels like the commitment requirement, right? Bridging the gap requires commitment, ties kind of back to the clarity piece about the why. Like, what is this work in the service of? And I feel like, I don't know, I I feel like there are many people who are on this journey, but they can't necessarily articulate themselves or their board members can't exactly articulate why. And isn't that part of the clarity here that's essential, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The why comes from the clarity and it's, you know, I, you know, the theory of change, right? I, I know many nonprofit leaders are tuning in, right? And, and I'm sure your organization has thought about doing theory of change. You've done it. You're thinking about doing it in the future. And that's all about, you know, what is the world that our organization is helping to build? Like, what's the kind of world we want to move into And sometimes answering that big question is like, oh my gosh, you know, you're giving me the pen to create this new world. I don't know where to start. And sometimes it's easier to start by naming the things in this world that we're in right now that we don't like. And and then thinking about, okay, if we don't like white supremacy culture, we don't like patriarchy or whatever the thing is that's kind of causing harm to you or you have that experience with it, what, what would be a different way? You know, and so I think like the more clear eyed we are about what we're up against, it's going to make us imagine, envision a
0: belonging culture. It will make
1: that process much easier.
0: Good. So let's now move into the structure dilemma. You capture it this way in your book and you say, quote, how then can an organization support DEI commitments when the fundamental structure of work is at odds with advancing them? End quote. So talk a little bit about the challenge of the hierarchy, and then, and then we can talk a little bit about some of the ways that you think about what could be different.
1: Absolutely. So hierarchy, right? Like I think um, many of us are familiar with this, you know, that kind of pyramid-shaped, there's an absolute top and an absolute bottom that the majority of workplaces are, you know, structuring their work. And, you know, kind of leaders at that absolute top have a higher concentration of power and decision-making authority, and most of that power flows in an upwards fashion, you know, uh, where selective information and directives often flow kind of downward to kind of those frontline staff and, and folks that are in between. So before kind of critiquing hierarchies, you know, I do want to say that, you know, they they offer a number of those advantages, such as clear lines of authority, defined roles and responsibilities, and accountability measures, Right yet they often lead to power struggles, right? And I think probably the most common power struggle many of us can relate to, right, is um, these struggles over resources and staff, you know, and attention of leadership, that increases toxic competition. I'm not saying competition is bad, but that kind of competition is toxic and it kind of undermines this kind of culture we're trying to build in the workplace of trust and safety and innovation, right? Right. And while those at the top of a hierarchy may enjoy the power that continuously flows upwards to them, they fail to spot some of that performance detracting power struggle, you know some of those battles in the ranks below and that's where dysfunction can show up in our workplaces and and, and also you know and this is like where they miss out on those innovative ideas, a different way of thinking that often lives kind of in the rank and file below those top levels of leadership. So how do you, how do you kind of shake that up? How do, you, how do you kind of get information that's really relevant? And how does this relate to DEI, right? Like what is going on in the culture throughout the organization that in the way that these organizations are, that most of our organizations are structured right now, it's difficult to, to unearth and find, right? So that's kind of, that's how I approach hierarchies and how I talk about them in the book.
0: So most of us know that model extremely well and have lived it most of our careers. So you actually, I, I'm, I'm trying to decide in which order to ask this question. So one is, can you create, let's say you're just going to stay in a hierarchy, right? Is that that's just have the model that your organization lives with? I don't have to actually completely blow a hierarchy up in order to create a sense of belonging, do I? I mean, I you you offer an alternative model, which I do want to explore, but I do want to say it makes belonging more of a challenge, but there are there's gotta be a way to work within a hierarchy that can that where I can imagine belonging being fostered.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think Maybe talking about the holarchy structure could be helpful, only in that for those who are in organizations where hierarchies are present, you might not be on the board of directors to say we're blowing it up and and completely restructuring. Um, So then go
0: ahead. So then go ahead, uh, Rhodes, and talk about this, this alternative model that you that called a holarchy, And what does that look like?
1: Sure. So, um, Holarchies—you know—they're 200 of the of the biggest kind of organizations, corporations around the world are using them right now. So, as I describe them, don't say, "Ah, oh, you know, this is just kind of a theory; it would never work." There's 200 organizations that really embrace this, and it's the idea where decision-making authority and power flow in a vertical direction, in a horizontal direction. So similar to the hierarchy, you know, there is an absolute top and an absolute bottom. So that kind of power and decision-making authority flows in that vertical direction. And, right, different from a hierarchy, they also flow horizontally to maximize every employee's ability to make localized tactical decisions related to their area of expertise. And the beauty of the holarchy is that it reduces unnecessary bureaucracy. So a couple of the benefits that come from holarchies, just to consider, right, is that they help with connecting with wisdom that lives at the edges of the organization that wouldn't otherwise be known to leadership. It's attractive for purpose-driven leaders who don't want employees to simply follow directives you know they're looking for those staff that are taking the lead you know that that are um, have an idea to solve localized problems outside of kind of the zone of genius for your executive team quickly more efficiently and with the right people in the room to kind of work through those challenges so it's a, it's a better way to accomplish a task because, right, most most leaders want a team full of leaders, you know, in theory, that are taking their piece of the organization and running forward with, with more autonomy and self-direction. Holarchies also embrace the concept of intrapreneurship, right? Not mm. entrepreneurship, but intra. So that's behaving like an entrepreneur while working within the larger organization. So, you know what, I have a new idea, you know, I, I want to share this with my team because I think it's going to allow us to be more responsive to, to community services that we're providing or a new project or program or research that we're doing. And, you know, and that's that's a sign if that exists, you know, that's a sign of psychological safety if more folks are doing that without fear of negative consequences. So, you know, something that we talked about before going live in the recording is You know, what might be on the minds of a lot of leaders when hearing this right now is like, well, if power is flowing in all direction, then our executives, are we making ourselves lead? And the answer is absolutely 100% no. Holarchies are going to help you if you're in a leadership position, be free from the burden of having to make decisions about the the organization that are outside your zone of expertise. So in other words, you're going to have more time to focus on the vision and the strategy, like where are you leading your organization over the next couple of years? Where do you want to be in 10 years, right? You have more time to do that kind of visioning work than being pulled into a decision about marketing, you know, for your next email publication, you know, that's just pulling time, your creativity time away from doing why you were, you know, doing the thing that you were hired to do. So there's a lot of benefits to them. There's a lot of proof of concept, you know, if, if folks are like, oh, I'm interested in learning more about this. You know, Zappos has been using a holarchy since 2014, and ha, you know has has been wildly successful. And like I said, you know, there's 200 other businesses around the world that are that are using these these models now.
0: Can you? It might be helpful for folks to. To the extent that you can, give give an example of how a holarchy works. So, how a decision gets made differently in a holarchy from. I mean, you've described it abstractly, but I wonder if we might actually bring it to life for people, so that they could see its benefit to the to the whole, if you will.
1: Yeah, yeah. So with a, with a holarchy, right? There, um, you've got your executive team, right? And you have, you know, just think about your organization and departments. So rather than the departments being structured in that kind of organizational pyramid structure, you know, the, the departments are working interdependently with the executive team. So you can kind of see it more as a circle, and each of those teams establishes their own team values that are in alignment with the organization's values and their own purpose. So the purpose of our marketing team is to make sure that more people know amazing services and, you know, we're attracting new donors and building relationships, you know, whatever that is. And when the team knows its purpose and each individual on the team understands their role and how it helps contribute to fulfilling that team purpose, that actually builds more connection. It builds, it goes back to that definition of belonging, you know, understanding like, you know, how you're aligned with the organization, feeling that sense of pride and being able to, to request what you need so you can do your best work. So if a problem does arise, and I keep using the marketing team, right? So if a problem does arise there, there can localize decision-making around how to solve that problem, so long as it's not something that needs the executive team to come in if you're going in a different direction from the vision of the organization, right? So long as you're not straying from that, you're able just to kind of function and be more efficient without that added bureaucracy where almost every kind of decision needs to be at least marginally approved by the executive team. So I hope that that helped kind of add a little more kind of concreteness to this abstract concept.
0: So I'll ask a different question then, which is that marketing team that you've described... So in a hierarchy, I've got all my, so let's say I've got a hundred and you know, let's say I'm a fairly large organization. I've got a hundred people and I've got people in my communications department and I've got people in my program department and I have I have a chief operating officer that handles IT and legal and you know everybody knows this this model, right? And then I have a development uh, department, okay? And each of the they're siloed, which is you know a a massive challenge in the hierarchy. Right? Is that I'm fighting for resources. I need a new major gifts officer. You need an IT manager, and I am competing for limited resources so that I can that I can make the pitch to the executive director that I get the major gifts officer because I can raise more money to end up getting you the IT manager. Right? So that's we all know that. We all know how that game is played. So in a holarchy, I'm finding myself wondering if they are cross-functional teams. So that, because I think that to me... That's the key here, is that I've got a marketing person who also has a finance person and a program per—like, it's a cross-functional team that is a microcosm in some ways of that executive team that's supposed to be looking at the intersectionality of what's going on, right? And because they have different voices at the table, they actually see the whole picture the way— in a hierarchy, generally only the executive team sees it. Yes.
1: You know, it's almost like concentric circles, and, okay. and it really kind of focuses on interdependencies. And when each of the, the team's departments, however you want to describe this, when each of those departments' teams comes up with their you know, team purpose, that's then shared with those other departments, right? Mm-hmm. So they understand how they work together, how they fit together in a very thoughtful way and how resources contribute to the greater good of the organization. And it, it it really focuses on cooperation. Cooperation is prioritized over that kind of competition that you were just describing.
0: And so the marketing team, as we've, we talked about, it has some cross-functionality around it. And how do you keep from, in the world of limited resources, this, this notion, how do you kind of tackle the gee, well, I'm the controller and I'm on the marketing team. But I have have finance responsibilities. Like, I don't have time to be on the marketing team, right? How do you navigate the distinction between I'm a part of a team that's in the service of marketing the organization, but I'm also the controller of this nonprofit organization. How do I allocate my own time resources in order to both be a collaborator and also do my job? Yeah,
1: I think with that, and that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Right. Um, yeah. I, I would say like the, I think with the wholearchy, it just, it allows you to consider those dual roles that you yep. just described and thinking about going back to where those interdependencies are. In how that helps support the greater good of the organization, in in a different way, where it doesn't feel like you have to kind of wear one hat at one time and another hat another time. Like it, it allows more for kind of a both and, right? Um, I know that's that's kind of abstract. I, I think for that particular person, they would think about their work in a different way. Yes, you know? and, and I think that that's that's the importance right now, and like kind of this thought exercise for people as you're thinking about it is like you know what would be the benefit of reimagining how you structure work yes. right and how that restructuring can actually help advance your DEI goals advance this desire to build more belonging in your workplace and what's the benefit from that and really you know I think then then that kind of circles back to your first question is like you know if you are in an organization where absolutely this idea of a holarchy is kind of dead on arrival, you know, how could you stitch in some of those elements of shared decision-making and kind of sharing more power, you know, that doesn't have to be so concentrated at the highest levels. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of the first, the first piece is to, for, for folks right now, like really understanding, like, how is your work structured the way that it is? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. was it, structured on autopilot because the hierarchy is what we know. It's really easy. You know, we know who's leading the organization. They're the face of the organization. And, you know, this is how we kind of function in this more pyramid structure. Like, is that the way that you work? Or, you know, are there examples of decentralizing decision-making, you know, and power in different instances? And you might be surprised that that might already exist in your organization. So that would be kind of the first place that I would start. And if you are kind of more of this hybrid, right? Like if you, if you are decentralizing some of your decision-making power and, um, um, and information where information is shared and where it's not, you know, how can you build on more of those elements to just kind of help more people see their interdependencies, more, more individuals see what their contributions provide to the team and then how the team fits into the broader organization, right. um, you know that that really, when people have a sense of how they're contributing, and in nonprofits, it's so wonderful how they are contributing to your mission, which is so purpose driven. That actually drives connection. It drives empathy. It drives all of the things that you're trying to build, likely through some of those DEI commitments that you've made. Yeah, um, it I is love one that. thing. It would. Lo- Sorry, it's just like one thing I really want to make sure is included in the. In, the, in our conversation is just what research is showing right now. So if you if in this part of the conversation it's, it's increasing you know that feeling of oh I'm not comfortable right now, this is scary. <laughs> I just want to leave you with that research shows that organizations who introduce massive changes uh, to their structure specifically, they, these organizations were twice as likely to succeed when they aligned their change management process. With that intentional culture that they're working to build. So in other words, you know, when you engage in really rethinking how you do work, the benefits come in spades. So you know, and again, that just like with feeling uncomfortable, when you're learning something new, mm-hmm. you know, when you change something that's so familiar and you kind of shake it up, there there's actually positive benefits to that. And I think many of us already are seeing this because of the past two years living through the pandemic and all of the changes that we've made, um, some of them for the better, you know? And I think from a DEI perspective, you know, just thinking about what so many people from communities that uh, for people with disabilities, right? That the request for decades of, hey, you know, is this a job where I can work remotely? And so often it's like, no, you must show up. You must come into the workplace. If we're questioning disrupting or changing our systems, you know, all we have to do is look at these past two years with the pandemic and see how many changes that we've we've made, some of them pretty radical, including this, you know, either remote working fully or hybrid workplaces, how those changes specifically have benefited people who've been asking for these kind of changes for decades, like people with disabilities, right? You know, can I do this amazing job of doing data management for the nonprofit that I work for? remotely? And, you know, decades ago, the answer would be no, you have to show up in the workplace if you want the job. And mm-hmm. and now we've made that kind of change. So just think about some of the other systemic changes that if we restructured work, how could that advance those DEI goals that you're setting so that the structures, the systems aren't getting in the way of the good intentions that we have? The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary, and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com
0: podcast. We are, we are chatting about imagining belonging. We are talking with Rhodes Perry who is a nationally recognized LGBTQ+, plus thought leader, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and award-winning social entrepreneur, serving as the CEO of leadership and management consulting firm. And he helps visionaries and changemakers build psychological safety, trust, and belonging at work. And we are actually talking about a concept that is embedded in his uh, newest book called Imagining Belonging. And we're talking about how the structure of an organization can thwart or, conversely, can really advance DEI objectives that organizations have. And as you were talking earlier, Rhodes, I continue to think about the phrase proof of concept. And I continue to think that oftentimes a hierarchical situation that people know what isn't working. They say, "Can you help us?" And I've I've certainly had this when I've coached CEOs. You know, I, my organization's really siloed. It's very siloed. I have tensions between members of my executive team, and they know what the problem is. And the notion that you could create Uh, And I don't know what you think about this, but like a cross-functional working group that is working on a particular, has a particular charge within the organization. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a DEI charge. I'm talking about a sort of a business goal. And you do some kind of a cross-functional where you see that the finance person is a three-dimensional, rich person with a story who actually really understands the organization and perhaps has lived experience with the work, the mission the mission of the organization advances. And I just wonder, the notion of working groups and task forces and things like that with the right kind of clarity of charge can illustrate... I think can build a kind of belonging, but also illustrate a proof of concept that that kind of working can actually really help your organization to thrive and create a different kind of culture. And I just, I wonder what you think about pilots and proof of concept and testing and working groups in a hierarchical setting so people can say, I really liked that. I felt really empowered and that was different. And can we have more of that?
1: Yeah, I I 100% think that, you know, if there is the willingness, you know, piloting is is a great way to experiment with sharing more power, decision-making authority power, and really, you know, highlighting those interdependencies because all of those departments exist to for the better good of the organization. So whether we're intentionally talking about our interdependencies or not, they're there. And to kind of highlight how, we've, how we work together and why we're leaning on finance to, to kind of guide our decision-making for a new program that we want to have and the longevity of that, that's really key. And, and I would say with, with DEI task force forces, when there is a leader responsible for visioning at that executive level, ideally some other staff to do the work, those actually really help with business objectives as well, and and in some of the nonprofits that I've worked with in, in developing these 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 different kind of committees or task forces, that experience has really created more connectivity and empathy as they're kind of implementing and doing the work. So yeah, I think that that's kind of something for your listeners to think about and kind of you know start start experimenting, start having conversations. Certainly, talk with with other DEI experts, you know, with with this aspect of the work of how this can absolutely supercharge some of the DEI actions that you're taking in in a more intentional way. I think it's go for it. You know, start yeah. st- changes in the air right now. So this is a really good time to do it.
0: Right, and but I think, but back to something that you said earlier is contextualize something like that, right? Don't as a leader just don't you know come out of nowhere and say, gee, we should have a cross functional team that works on that. <laughs> yes. Don't you think that would be neat? Right? Yes. <laughs> Is it tie yes. it back to What does your organization value? Do you value the voices of the people around your virtual table, right? Mm -hmm. What are those shared values and commitments Mm -hmm. that you make to each other? And where might a pilot or a task force fit into that? I think that far too often we make way too many assumptions that people understand why we're doing the things that we're doing, especially if we're at the top of that pyramid and giving space to have conversations about what the organization's core values are and how decision-making and thinking about it differently fits into that. feels really, really important. I feel like in our pre-conversation, you and I also talked about culture. And we talked about how do you know what kind of culture you have, right? I, you know, so I, you know, I run a for-profit business where we help helpers, and I've got a team of 14 people, some full-time, some contract folks. I'm not always sure that I know what my team would say is the culture. And, and then I was coaching a CEO who was looking for a new job, and they said, the culture really matters to me is there a question that I could ask that would help me to better gauge what the culture of the organization is and whether or not that's a place, that's uh, a sandbox I want to, you know, take my toys and put them in, right? And so I said, well, it seems to me the, probably the most, uh, the clearest evidence of the culture of an organization is how a significant decision gets made. Yes. And that if you can actually in an interview say, you know, I'd really like to know more about the culture of the organization. If you leave it that way, you're going to get platitudes, you might get snowed, right? Mm -hmm. But if you say, can you take me through the last big decision the organization had to make? and take me through the process of that, I think it can be very, very instructive. And so so I just wanted to just end by talking a little bit about the connection between culture and decision-making and any sort of insights or observations you have about that, Rhodes.
1: Well, when you shared that with me before, I was like, that is brilliant. And, And I think on that piece of walk me through, you know, your last big decision, I think I would add to that if, if it's not addressed in the response, is mm-hmm. how did you inform that decision, right? You know, you're talking about the process and being really specific. You know, how did you engage different stakeholders throughout the organization? And obviously, in, in nonprofits, so many nonprofit leaders listening right now, you're serving probably vastly different communities. How are you soliciting feedback from those communities that are benefiting from the programs and services that you offer and I think that will will tell you pretty quickly about intentionality versus kind of this autopilot of how our culture functions based off of what we've we've subconsciously learned in our professional lives of you know what is what is professional in the workplace how do we make decisions how did the leaders in my last organization make decisions if we are trying to be intentionally inclusive and being more mindful of who we might be unintentionally excluding right that element is going to be really helpful to, to kind of gauge in terms of like, what is our, what is our culture like right now? And mostly to kind of identify some of those missing gaps, right? I think that that, that's a helpful place to start. And I, I really love that guidance that you shared <laughs> to the yeah. person. Who had. It's the, super smart. Um,
0: the other thing that, that I, I'm reminded of is I'm working yeah. with a, a woman who is beginning a, Uh, Starting an organization, it's actually a spinoff from a uh, larger organization that is looking at the intersection of, wait for it, the disability community, the deaf community, criminal justice system, and survivor advocacy. Yeah. And we are, uh, as we work together, Nancy and I are talking about, she talks about, I want to build an interabled organization and she is also talking about we, we have created uh, different, you know, looked, every, we looked at different kinds of org chart models because, as she says, why should the communication staff not have a strategy person on that team, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we've been having all of these different conversations about the ways in which departments and silos really, they actually don't give people the opportunity to be their best, to do their best and highest work. And, and to the point of this particular sector, this nonprofit sector, this is what people came to do. They came to have a voice, to be a three-dimensional human being. When somebody says, how did you spend your weekend, that they want to be able to say authentically, here's how I spent my weekend. Like all of those things, they matter in any sector. But I, I would argue that it feels to me they matter more in a sector that's trying to repair the world in ways large and small. Don't you think, Rhodes?
1: Absolutely. I feel that nonprofits are so poised to do DEI work well. And and I think because organizations on paper are mission-driven, there's values, there's vision statements, right? Like it's all all of the pieces are there. It's like the alignment, the intentionality, the ongoing conversation of like, are we doing those things that we said we intend to do? And if we're not, you know, really engaging to, to kind of solicit feedback and voices on how to how to do it better, right? Or how to know so that you can do it better. And I think um, from personal experience, from the work that I'm doing right now, from the research that I do, there's a lot of room in the nonprofit sector to do this work in a way that really does lead to transformation. And I know it's possible because purpose-driven organizations are those organizations that you know, people are more fulfilled at working at you know, yeah more innovation occurs, and people are more likely to stick around and yet you know there's there's still a lot of room to run in the nonprofit sector. so we all have our work to do, right and you know those are I think those are advantages to the sector that I hope more organizations, more executives will recognize and use
0: right right and them. not and not see you know, the size of their organization or the size of their budget as a constraint to say, I can't do this work because I can't afford a fill in the blank to come help me do it. You know, many organizations have that luxury, but it's not, right, you, that doesn't let you off the hook if you don't. And there are ways, and there's lots and lots of ways because you actually have all the things Rhodes is already talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you may not, you know, you might not be Accenture or Bristol-Myers Squibb or, you know, these, org- these these large corporations that have really, really big budgets to do this work, right? Like, that's to their advantage. Like, think about what your nonprofit has as an advantage. And I, I'm just thinking of the nonprofits that I worked at, Community, right? Like Right. That, connection, right? You you ask and people will share feedback, right? And you know how to organize. I mean, most nonprofits, you know, like have that ability to organize their communities. So just take stock of those things that you have at the ready, including, you know, a very clear mission of what you do, a very clear why, and just connect your DEI commitments to that. And then you'll see how this work lives in everything that you do. And that it's not something that's off to the side that you focus on at your your board retreats and then that's the, the end of it, right? Like there's, you can do it and there's big ways to do it. And, you know, in the book that I have coming out, there's also just from a leader's perspective, what can you do even if you don't have resources and the rest of your team isn't on board and, you know, building your teams is difficult to do. Like, what can you do? And there's a lot of basic actions that even though they might feel super simple, when you consistently show up and practice them and do them, they make a world of difference. So start there if you're feeling overwhelmed and and don't try to boil the ocean from the beginning. Just kind of continue to take actions and be intentional with them.
0: Rhodes Perry has a website. His It's called... I th- is it called roadsperry.com or is it called Conscious? Ro- <laughs> okay, the, okay. <laughs> Rhodes-Perry. Rhodes-Perry, <laughs> RhodesPerry.com. And he does have resources there. Uh, just a quick 411 on those before we leave our friends for the day.
1: Yeah, sure. So you can check out roadsperry.com. Everything is there. You can click on the book link at the top. You can also go to imaginebelonging.com. And the book, this next book that we've been talking so much about comes out on February 22nd, 2022. Lots of great resources in there. We have a a book community. We have a belonging membership community. So if you are engaged with this work, if you have leaders inside your organization that are taking the charge on implementing your DEI commitments, definitely check out the belonging membership community. We've got a great group of leaders that meets regularly twice a month, and it's a great source of support as you continue this journey in your organizations.
0: Rhodes Perry, uh, thank you so much. I always, uh, whether I'm in front of a microphone or not, I always really enjoy our conversations. I find them deeply enriching for myself, and I feel like it's a privilege to be able to share it with those that are listening today. So thanks again for joining us, Rhodes.
1: Thank you, Joan. Appreciate you. Keep keep up the amazing leadership. Thank
0: well, you. good. And tell your parents that we just loved the wind the wind <laughs> chimes because uh, it just added this sort of, I don't know, it had the little like like Tinkerbell kind of moments to our conversation today. So uh, thanks again for joining us and to all of you who are listening, thanks for taking time out to listen. And as always, thanks for the work that you do every single day. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.